Good evening, Hope Church. Open up to the book of Ephesians 6 as we continue on through this uh, uh, great uh, uh, passage on spiritual warfare in the Christian's life. Now, last week in verses 10 through 13, we, we basically got no further than being able to just recognize the reality of the warfare, the reality and the presence of our enemy that is against the people of God, the devil and all of his hordes, against the church and against every Christian. Now, let's read what what verse 13 says by application of that fact down into uh, verse 15, which will be the end of our passage tonight. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Somebody should name a conference after that. That's tremendous. Verse 14, stands therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. May God bless his own word in our midst this evening. Amen. Amen. Every Christian is living and seeking to live, as we've read through uh, Ephesians uh, so far, every Christian is trying to live the pleasing life to God. We're, we're trying to put off the things we were told to put off, the old ways of living, the old sins and passions. We're all trying to put on the new way of living after Christ's example and according to his commands. All of us are trying to do this, and it is an extremely hard deal, hard yakka in it, if even that was all that there was to the Christian life. But there's much more than that. You're in fact also opposed by a constant, powerful, invisible enemy that can use literally anyone and anything that he wants, according to certain conditions, against you and your sanctification. Think of it this way, that that it is hard enough if any one of us was to jump on a plane and go and get dropped off in the wonderful, beautiful, but hot PNG. And it would be difficult enough if any one of us, like some of our missionaries will be doing later on this year, were to be commanded, march up the mountains, go down the valleys, step over the the stinning nettle, avoid the strange animals you've never seen before in your life, all in the tropical 40 degrees, 78,000% humidity. That would be hard enough. Now imagine on top of that, you were placed a heavy backpack with emergency supplies, ammunition, medical supplies, clothing, backup things, a weaponry, food for your other people into your pack, telecommunication items as well, plus heavy geared protective uh, uh, clothing. And, of course, not only that, and you can start putting together the picture, this is the, this is the Australian soldiers that were sent to the Kokoda Trail in PNG in the 1940s against the, 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 the advancing enemy coming across the Pacific to try and eventually take and control all of Australasia. Not only was, would that be hard enough in Kokoda, in the heat, with the difficulty, climbing and descending with all of the gear, but add to that the fact that they had enemy warfare shooting against them, planting bombs, booby traps, and all the kind of thing against them. That's the kind of picture for the Christian life. Like up until now, before, before Paul really mentioned Satan, like he told us non-Christians are under the, the power and, 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 and influence of Satan. But without the reference of Satan to Christians, this life, can we agree, sounds pretty hard enough considering everything that Paul has said we have to be doing and have to not be doing. That's, that's extreme enough. Then he adds the fact Satan also has your name and has billions of angels against you that have fallen and despise you. And it's there 24-7 job. And they don't sleep, so they've got that one on you. They are trying to lie, connive, distract, twist, and abuse the church. And then 
Despite all of that enmity, despite all of that hopelessness, despite the, the, the size and, the, and the, 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 the superiority it may seem of our enemy, Paul then says in verse 13, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. He also said in verse 11, put on the armor of God that you, can, that you may be able to stand. In other words, though Paul is saying this is a terrible enemy, he's against us, he's attacking, he's invisible, he's got all of these advantages on us, yet if all we do is take up the armor of God, God doesn't just see it as a potential theoretical possibility, he has it as an expectation that Christians will be able to mount a defense and an offense against the devil and his attacks. This is the great encouragement of Ephesians 6. Yes, there's warfare. Yes, there's an enemy, but for all God's people, equipped by his spirit, bring it on. Bring it on. And he starts here with saying that you need, before you take him on, before he comes to you in the evil day, which could be any day that he decides to attack us, tonight, you, tomorrow, any one of us is in years or days to come. The evil day is just a generic term of whenever he amounts his offense. We are able, if we take up the armor of God, to stand firm. And so he starts with the belt of truth that is, that is needing to be fastened around our waist. Now, I think as we ask this, we discuss what it means to have the belt of truth fastened around us. I want to first define that the belt of truth is to have it fastened around your waist, spiritually speaking, is both to know the truth and to live in the truth. Or to know the truth objectively in your mind and to appropriate that in a truth-filled, honest kind of lifestyle, especially relating to our speech. And I think that's the way that as we look at both this knowing the truth and living the truth, both of these things have been two themes that have been coming to us in all of Paul's commands and speaking just in this book. So back in chapter 1, in verse 13, Paul thinks of the truth, capital T, capital T, the truth, is really just a synonym for him for the gospel, the message that you believe to get saved. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you were saved. So he sees that on, on one hand, there's this objective truth we need in our minds, the, the message of the gospel. Do you know it? Can you, can you answer questions about it? Can you defend certain main tenets of the gospel? Do you know the gospel? And if you don't, it's my pleasure. Hello, I'm Tom. I tell people the gospel. That's why I live. So Jesus Christ is a man that lived and died over 2,000 years ago. And he was not merely a man. He was God in the appearance of and taking on the nature of man. The reason being that every human being that had ever lived since our first father, Adam, had committed and been born into and lived a life full of sin, breaking God's commands, rebelling against his rule, and pleasing themselves. Every single one of us, therefore, stand in darkness, we stand polluted, and we stand guilty against God. And God in his grace sent his own son, his own, his own self in full God nature into a human nature so that he could then do what we couldn't do, which was live perfectly. 
And that he would then go and do what we needed to do, which was die on the cross to pay for our sins. And then God honored him by raising him from the dead. And now, Jesus said, he commanded his disciples, go and tell everybody anywhere that whoever believes in me, whoever rests in my death for them, whoever trusts in my leadership of their soul, whoever trusts me for their salvation and forgiveness before God will be added to the number, will be forgiven of their sins and become one of God's children. That's the gospel. That's the truth you need in your mind and all of the connected doctrines and dogma of Scripture, of course. But that's the central truth. The word of the gospel of your salvation. That's what Paul thinks. Do you have the truth in yourself? Secondly, though, truth is also a part of what the Spirit does to us. So chapter 1, verse 17, is a part of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And he's praying that the Spirit would give to you a, some, a, the, a wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. That is that not only did you receive the truth, the true message in the gospel by which you were saved, but also it is then the divine spirit's work to be increasing in you an understanding of that, an increased wisdom around that, an increasing understanding of what the gospel means. And that is what he means by the spirit to give to you wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Or in chapter 4, verse 15, part of our job to build up the membership of the body which is his context in chapter 4. How does the body grow? How does this church, church be edified and get purer and more stronger? And he says, well, one of the ways we do that in chapter 4, verse 15, is to confess the truth in love. That is to have a common confession. We stand around the, the gospel truth and we, we confess certain things about the trinity of God, we, about the nature of God, about the salvation of God, around Jesus Christ, the Savior of God. We confess the truth, that is the objective truth outside of us, in love, and that's how we grow. So, so, so you can already tell, just by reading every other chapter of Ephesians, that in Paul's mind, the truth has such a power that it is more than information. It is God's power for transformation inside the Christian. That when applied by the Spirit, you get saved. And when, 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 when pressed in by the Spirit, you get transformed. And when, and when confessed by the Spirit in our midst, it, it, it raises us up and teaches us and strengthens us. So the truth is a necessary element of every Christian's armory because the devil attacks always along the lines of lies. Part of Paul's reasoning here, we see it by the use of the word therefore. He says we have this enemy, therefore put on the belt of truth. He's a liar, he's got the schemes, he's, he's, all, he's, all, he's very powerful, he's got uh, structures and, and, and powers of evil darkness and cosmic rule. He's got all these things, therefore, know what is true and know it deeply. Part of the, you know, Jesus said this in his earthly ministry, he said the devil is a liar because, and he's the father of lies because he's been a liar from the beginning. This was, this was his first ploy and play against Adam and Eve was to lie to them about what God had said. It sounded true, but it was a half lie, which is as good as a lie. And it was enough of a lie to twist God's words and see them fall down into sin. And he has done that every time he's run a play. 
Every, every single time the devil is aiming and taking shot at the church and God's purposes, at least one of the bullets in the barrel is something to do with deception and lying. And therefore, people who know the truth, the more you know the truth, the more able to be immune to Satan's schemes you are. The more you know the truth, the more immune you are to Satan's schemes. But that is not always a concrete rule as if knowledge was enough. We had a laugh last week about the, the imagery of a, of a young soldier who can define the bullets and who can explain the physics of the rifle and who can, who can uh, tell you how the Kevlar bulletproof uh, vests are made and he could describe to you the helmet but he's standing out in his jocks on the battlefield and gets taken down with a single bullet or just somebody who throws an empty clip at his head. Because he can think a lot and he can describe a lot and he can explain a lot but he's not doing anything. And he loves the footnotes. And he's got a better Bible than you. And he can quote people much faster than you can. And he's got a really long list of books he's never read. And he's really clever, but he's useless on the battlefield. Every church has at least some of them. And Paul has, has told us that we need to be armored up, not just knowing about armor. And yet, that does not mean, and I will not allow that warning that I made to then suggest that truth is optional. Truth is not optional. There is not just the, the knowing Christians and the feeling Christians, or the Bible Christians and the spirit Christians. Never let anybody convince you that there is such a dichotomy. There is not. The spirit Christians are the ones who know their Bible. The Bible Christians are the ones filled with the spirit and on mission by him. So, all of this is to say that the, the degree to which we know the truth is the degree to which we can be immune against Satan's schemes because we are told to strap on the truth, buckle it up. But the second element that we were saying is not just to know the truth, but to be speaking the truth. He, he, he said this back in a previous chapter. He says in chapter 4, verse 21, that we were taught in Christ as the truth is in Jesus to put our, our old, off our old self. In other words, when, he, when Paul thinks of the moment of your conversion, when you were a non-Christian, then you received the gospel and you changed. That moment of repentance is a picture of you putting off the old self and putting on truth. Putting on the truth as it is in Jesus. Or in verse 25 of chapter 4, he says that a part of your sanctification is to be taking off falsehood and putting on truth. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He even says that this is one of the necessary fruits of being in the light, is, is being somebody who is true. He says in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 5, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So on one hand, we must be those who know the gospel truth, who can define biblical realities and, and are able to study and we get to the midweek meetings and we, we ask our pastors and we, we seek to learn things that the Bible teaches us and we pair up with that the truth spoken in our lives. Very commonly, we can think of little lies, especially, especially lies that, that help other people and just an ounce of dishonesty, and just a sprinkling of double-tonguedness, and just a little bit of deception. We can think of those as really 
pretty harmless sins. No one's getting hurt. I'm even sort of buttering them up by it, or I'm avoiding hurting them. I don't have to have the hard word. A little bit of deception, a little bit of self-promotion through lies. Who's really hurt? And Paul will tell us the entire church is hurt. Because when soldiers don't have their, their tunic wrapped up, they can't run. They'll trip. When, when soldiers don't have their, their sword uh, uh, strapped onto their belt, they will lose their weaponry. When, when people don't have the belt tied up, all sorts of things fall apart and leave them, leave them almost naked on the battlefield and therefore useless. And so each one of us must be warned that our, the way we speak, the way we communicate, the degree to which we exaggerate or, or deceive is the degree to which we are putting on the armor. Know the truth, speak the truth. Look what he says in, at the uh, end of verse 14. He says, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, there's, there's a lot of people that sort of start uh, commenting on this section of Scripture and, and say, well, obviously, we know why Paul starts using this armory language, right? He's in, he's in house arrest in Rome. He's rented a, a, a small little house, and he can have visitors, and he can teach, and he can write and send letters. But at all times, he is under the, the, the supervision and being watched by a Roman soldier. Now, here's what's obviously happening. Every day as they change over their shifts, a Roman soldier comes in and takes off of his armor, and the other guy puts all of his armor on. And as Paul watches this, he then goes, here's a perfect illustration. And I just don't think... Life is quite that neat and tidy. I, I don't think that's necessarily what Paul is writing. First of all, because I'm not convinced that Roman soldiers didn't get dressed until they got to work, number one. I'm also not convinced that one guy in chains in a small house would, necess would necessitate the, 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 the Roman soldiers wearing all of their military regalia, especially pointed sandals on cobblestone Flaws, which would, was well known to be a slipping hazard. I don't think that's necessarily happening. Surely at some point he's looking over to the Romans and, and thinking about armory. That may be the case. But what we do know for certain, what we do know for I'm sorry if I just ruined anybody's Sunday school activities where you're coloring in all the Roman soldier and you've memorized it that way. I'm, I'm sorry. But what we definitely know was in Paul's mind when he's writing this language of the armory is Isaiah 59, verse 17. Isaiah 59, verse 17, is in the context of Isaiah as a prophet of God, foreseeing the time when God himself will come as the divine warrior, strap on his armory, take the heads of his enemies, bust out entire indignation and pour out the justice of God, and then win for his people's salvation. That's, that's what Isaiah was foreseeing. And listen to Isaiah 59, verse 17. See if it sounds familiar. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. Jesus, what, what, what thread is your clothing made out of? Vengeance. That's a cool answer. Who are you wearing tonight, Jesus Christ? I'm wearing vengeance. And wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Does Jesus have a cape? Apparently, Isaiah 59 says he does. And it's made out of pure zeal. He's got a cape of zeal. And according to their deeds, verse 18 says, so he will repay. 
wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. What an amazing picture. We, we saw back in chapter 4, he quoted from Psalm 68, the picture of the divine warrior slaying God's enemies. He picks it up again here because Paul thinks of Jesus as a divine warrior. And, and so maybe for Paul, we, we can't think, we can't picture ourselves as putting on these spiritual versions of the Roman armory and we think, oh, that was cool. I like that imagery. Throw it away. You got something way better. Paul is saying that we put on the armory that Jesus wore when he came down and fought the spiritual battle in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. I love this bit. It's as if, it's as if the, 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 the father, the veteran father, had, had wore a, a, a war-torn and old ancient armory and breastplates that had been handed down from his own ancestors. And, and he had fought in battles for the country and for the king. And, and as his son is called for war, his father invites him in and he takes the breastplate down off the display. He puts it onto his son. He, he, he ties it around and fits it perfectly as if to say, I wore this, now you wear this, go and do me that's the picture. Jesus put on the righteousness as a breastplate and salvation as a helmet and did everything that Paul is now looking towards us and saying, if you claim to follow him, then you do the same thing. You don't have to go forge your own armor. You don't have to find in your own self righteousness. You get to take what is Jesus and receive it onto your own self. And you might ask at this point, okay, righteousness. We need righteousness like Jesus had righteousness on our, on our chest, protecting our most vital organs, front and back. We, we need righteousness. Pause. Is this my righteousness, my good deeds, my behavior, asks the Catholic? Or is this, is this the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to my account by which God judges me righteous, though I am not in myself righteous, asks the Protestant. And the answer is, Catholics are wrong, they don't matter. But, but in this analogy, they are both. They are, it is both. The breastplate of our righteousness is, first of all, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. Without that, any breastplate you put on is crepe paper. It is ripping, tearing, being burned and destroyed the moment the battle starts. However, it is also the lived, actual, real-time obedience and moral uprightness of the Christian. The clean conscience of the Christian requires both. To have a clean conscience before God, according to Hebrews, you need to be able to know that you're a sinner, but also know that every sin has been paid to its complete degree and there is not a single outstanding uh, a sin, remark, act, thought, or deed. There's nothing standing against you before a holy God so that as Hebrews says, you can be laid bare in front of him and he will not see a single blemish. That is only possible if by faith you received as a gift the perfect record of life that Jesus lived for you and then holds out. Unless you have received his record as your legal record, even though you've never lived that life, even though you've never acted perfectly obedient, Jesus did, Jesus was perfectly righteous, and the legal financial language that the Bible uses is imputation. His account was, was emptied and credited to you. You have all of his funds of righteousness. That anybody that believes in Jesus gets his full righteousness to your account because he 
took all of your debts and they were applied to him, thereby he died for them on the cross. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is the grounds for all hope for the Christian. Every promise of God comes up, that, 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 that we, we, in, we inherit and that we enjoy and that we look forward to comes on the condition that by faith you have been justified in Jesus Christ. God doesn't adopt anybody who isn't justified. God doesn't give an inheritance in heaven to anybody that isn't justified. God doesn't give his Holy Spirit to anybody that is not justified. The first thing that God does to you by faith is give you his, his son's righteousness and thereby justify. You say, as far as the law is concerned, you're righteous. You're perfect and infinitely so. But it is also the grounds of all of the hope and assurance and joy for the Christian. I have met Christians that are tremendously depressed, and upon asking, tell me, tell me what you think is your right standing with God. Tell, what do you think I mean when I say the imputed righteousness of Jesus? Well, what is the active obedience of Christ on our behalf? What does that mean? And where any of those Christians say, I, I'm not sure, I don't know, I've, I've never heard that before, my simple answer is, you deserve to be depressed. You deserve to be, not as a punishment, but as a, of course you will be. What possible joy could you muster up in life if you are not aware that before God, there is an infinite protection from your own sin? There is no grounds for anything other than abject depression. But for the Christian who knows this, it is the source of all joy. J. Gresham Machen, who spent his life fighting for this doctrine. Didn't even get married, he was too busy on this stuff. He fought against the liberals, against the, the feminists, against all those who would try and twist the meanings of the gospel. He fought for, for justification by faith alone, for hell, for all this sort of, and the imputed righteousness of Jesus to the believer. He fought for that, and on his deathbed at like 50-something, dying of either tuberculosis or pneumonia of some kind, he sent off a, a short telegram to a friend. The active obedience of Jesus. No hope without it. That was his dying thought. His source, the source of all his joy and hope is that my standing before God is not even touched up or blemished in the slightest based on what I have done. It is entirely from first to last, from ground to the infinite sky, made up of nothing other than the perfectly lived obedience of Jesus Christ for me. The Christian, to have a clean conscience before God, needs to be sure you have that by faith. But to be living your life with a clean conscience, you also need to have moral uprightness whereby you are repenting of known sin and drawing near to God. These two things are like two, two different medals that together become the chain mail when twisted together that become the impenetrable breastplate of righteousness. If you know you have Christ's righteousness and then are flimsy with repentance and are, and are pretty lazy and lax with the disciplines of grace and tolerate sin and, and always cover up unrepentance that you have and, and love to point out their sin and not really mention your own, you don't pray much, you don't confess much, if that is you, then you may well be saved, but you cannot go before God with a clean conscience. You know that. Because every time you try and draw near, he reminds you, you are sinning intentionally against your father. Not judge. Not judge anymore. I'm your father, and this is how you treat me. The, con the 
conscience of the Christian to be clean needs imputed righteousness and a lived morality. The, 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 the devil is throughout Scripture at different times called the accuser. He, he loves, and before Jesus died, we, we should have shown this drama that, that he would be employed as the court accuser. It was his job to, to wrangle up the list of sins that any one person or that all of God's people had committed, and he loved reminding God of the legal standing that stood against all those people that God was relating to. And, and we see this in Revelation 14, that the accuser of the brethren has been wrapped up and cast out of heaven to fall to earth because he has no grounds upon which to stand as an accuser of the brothers and sisters anymore. Our legal standing has been, has been secured by being paid for. He can't accuse. So, so he may come to you and say, hey, you call yourself, you think you're going to heaven. <laughs> Let me get that right. Heaven with God forever without any shield between you and the thrice holy God. That's interesting because I remember that in primary school, you did these things. Remember in high school, you, you were this sort of person. I know that in your young adult years, all the sins that you invented up Look, these people that you did this with, those, friend, those people that you, that you betrayed or spoke against, these, these Christians that you beguiled and lied to, you, this sort of way that you spoke to your family, the, the way that you abused others and, and tolerated even abused yourself, the, the ways that you just threw yourself into sin and you dare come to church and call yourself a Christian? To which we say, after Martin Luther's advice, devil, you don't know the half of it. We say, absolutely, but my standing with God is not based on me, but on the standing of Jesus Christ himself. And since he can't be moved out of heaven, my right standing with God can't be moved out of heaven. My righteousness is not just some, some bank account nebulously sitting somewhere. It is a person, it is on the throne, and it is indestructible. I'm perfect as far as God's concerned. But maybe then the devil says to you, oh, okay, you claim that. Which sounds pretty glorious. You go to heaven. You've been given heaven on the basis of that, and you still live the way you live. Now, if you don't have a clean conscience, you can't stand up to that. You say, yeah, and what do I do? But if you have a clean conscience as a Christian, genuinely repenting, genuinely living in holiness, genuinely doing all that you can to grow, then you can say like John Newton said, you can say, I am not what I ought to be, granted. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I am one day going to be in heaven, but by God's grace, I am not what I once was. That's what the Christian with a clean conscience can say. The breastplate of righteousness enables you in spiritual warfare because what so few people recognize about spiritual warfare is that your effectiveness raises and rises and falls on your confidence in the gospel. You can't do any good for the kingdom where you're not sure that you're forgiven and where you are not equipped with holiness. So Paul says you need the breastplate of righteousness so that when the, when the accusing javelins of the devil are thrown at you, they are blunted immediately and fall to the ground because your breastplate is made up of both Christ's righteousness and your own moral responsibility before God by which you are doing what you can to be like Jesus. In that order. His righteousness first, my righteousness second. <clears throat> and then he speaks of... The shoes for your feet is what the ESV says. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, I think the NLT says crocs for your feet, having put on the readiness 
given by the gospel of peace. If I can make it as simple as possible, he means this. You need to be ready at any and every moment to be able to present and share the gospel. That is how you remain as forward-moving and advancing as a Christian as possible. Okay, the, the, the Christian who, is, who has got basically everything down pat, like they've read all of the spirit books, they've watched all of the demon exorcism movies, they have dreams like crazy, they've got prophecies, they've read Revelation twice or more. They know their, their favorite book is the book of Daniel and they can timeline everything from now to the end of the world. They know the spiritual stuff. They're even faithful prayers. They know the imputed righteousness of Christ. They, they know all that is God's good to them in the truth. They speak true things, but they don't know how to share the gospel and they don't know that that is the, the, the most important thing about their Christian living then they're like, they're like soldiers who have done all of their training, they have all of their armor, but they can't find their boots as they're in the back of the Humvee about to get dropped off into enemy territory. They won't be able to move. And if they do, they'll be going at such a slow pace over the jagged rocks of the, of the, of the, of the, of the battlefield that they will be rendered useless. And this is the most important thing about, about our spiritual warfare. This is what John Calvin said of the preaching of the gospel. He says, the preaching of the gospel makes Satan fall like lightning. This is the one thing the devil has no defense against as far as you and him are concerned. Prayer, yes, but prayer involves God himself doing the fighting as, as an airstrike. In terms of your own battle with the devil, the one way that you can offensively move forward and march uh, uh, in order to extend the kingdom rather than just remain responsive and defensive is to have the gospel on your lips and to be proclaiming it. So many people in the Christian life are on their tiptoes ready to have some dumb debate about obscure passages. Or are on their tiptoes ready to ask, to ask if people have got a prayer point. Not bad. Or they're on their toes ready to cook a meal for someone. Good. They're on their toes ready to give an encouragement. That's fine. They're on their toes always ready to serve someone somehow. Not a bad thing. But they lack the readiness at the smallest little gap in the conversation when they realize this person needs the gospel, they don't have it, and they fail to have the ability to, to swing and strike and get in that gap and present the gospel. I, I think of the, uh, the, the story in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, when, when, that, when the, the people of God are going against their enemies on the battlefield, and it says that at random, a foot soldier of the enemy, who, was, who God was siding with them this day because God's people were being rebellious. And this, this foot soldier, just one of the arrow boys, had, had hardly any training and was just going through puberty. His voice was cracking while they were doing the chants. And he just aims his arrow, and it says, and at random, just flung at it and let go. And it sailed through the air across the battlefield and caught the rebellious king of God's people in a gap in the armor just as he looked back to watch. And it killed him. And that's a picture of what the gospel can be like, even in the most timid, new, uneducated Christian. You have that one thing, that if God would just bless it, it would be able to take down even the greatest spiritual attacks coming against the church. You'd be able to, to it, it's like the gospel is the vice grips that can break the chains and are the only thing that can break the bonds and chains around the souls of people who are going their way to hell. 
the gospel. Can you explain the gospel? How many of you would, would be perfectly confident if I, if I took five people at random and said, there you go, preach the gospel to us for two minutes? How many of you would be genuinely confident? Or, or I can recommend this, that this week we don't have midweek Bible studies. You guys all catch up yourself. You sit across your friend, your brother or your sister, your housemate, and go, all right, two minutes, share the gospel with me as if I've never heard it before. Can you do it? Can you do it cohesively? Can you make it sound like it's coming from a normal person and not just repeating a preacher that you hear on, on YouTube? Can you actually present the gospel? This is, this is very on the ground, rubber hitting the road, practical spiritual warfare. Can you share the gospel? What Paul says in another passage in Romans 10, verse 13, I'll share first the Isaiah passage. Romans 10, verse 13, Paul again quotes Isaiah in Isaiah 52, verse 7, and he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. Back in the day before texts and tweets and phones, you would need people, the runners, the messengers, the, the heralds, or the evangelists, they were called, the good messengers, to carry the message of a, of a victorious king, run over the mountains and take it to their people back home. And Isaiah is picking up on this and saying, blessed are the ones who know the victorious battle of Jesus and who can preach it. Paul picks this up in Romans 10 verse 13 and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What an awesome quote. What an awesome quotation from the Old Testament to apply. Every single person who is a sinner who calls on Jesus to save them will be saved. Verse 14. But how will they call on him in whom they've never believed? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear of him unless someone preaches to them? And how is someone to preach to them unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled every time a Christian stands up, walks across the aisle of the bus, and sits down and shares the gospel. His prophecy of glory is fulfilled every time you see somebody heartbroken after the sermon. You stand up, you sit down next to them and speak to them of the Savior. When, when you know somebody that you've shared the gospel with before and you pray for them and they receive salvation or, or when you go to foreign nations and take the gospel in tracts or in voice or whatever it may be, that is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and precisely in obedience to Paul's command here. Be ready to share the gospel, or you are a soldier without feet, and you can't move anywhere. That is what he tells us here in Ephesians chapter 6. It is the most powerful weapon. For the more, most small, timid, poor, new Christian, you can share the gospel. And it is my experience that young, fresh Christians that share the gospel usually do so at the rate of about 100 heresies an hour. And that's okay. That is absolutely fine as long as you get better. But you won't get better unless you do. I love to see young Christians, new Christians, I mean, newborn babes, share the gospel when they, they know not much else, but they know who saved them. Like the, like the blind man from John's gospel. 
Hey, hey, who saved you? Who gave you your sight back? What happened? And he says, I don't know. I don't know who he is, what happened, or where I am. What I know is this. I was blind. Now I can see. Every Christian has at least that gospel testimony. I was a sinner, condemned to hell. Jesus saved me, and he can save you too. Every single person who stands here tonight and hears this and, 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 and understands some of what is coming from the Scripture, your, your primary imperative and your most absolute important act of obedience from now is not to go home and speak more truthfully, is not to go home and, and study more up on the gospel so you can figure out how to share it. If you are here and you are not yet a Christian with your sins forgiven, the most important thing for you to do is to receive the good news of God's salvation from, from, from these blessed feet, if I can say it that way. That, that, that Paul here calls it the gospel of peace. Isn't it amazing? And in a passage about warfare, he says we share the gospel of peace. Because our warfare, unsaved friends and family, our warfare is against the spiritual beings, the demonic realm, the satanic forces that keep you enslaved to lies. But for you, we hold out peace. There's, there's no gospel for any demons. Every one of them will burn in hell forever. But there is gospel of peace for human beings who are made in God's image. For you, God sent his son. For you, God crushed his son. For human beings who are sinners, God raised up his son and published the good news like, like, a, like a king used to do and then send out heralds. Peace, peace for any of the king's enemies who agree to throw down your weapons and come underneath his banner. Your rebellion will be forgotten. Your arms will not be, will not, you, you will not be punished for raising up arms. You will receive peace. It's the best news in the world. Peace between you and the God you've sinned against. That is what you need to enact tonight. Don't try and figure out true things or fix up how truthfully you speak. Receive the truth as it is in Jesus. Don't try and be more righteous. Receive the righteousness of Jesus. Don't try and put on your feet and explain the gospel. Receive the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And for every Christian that is here, I have the words of William Gurnall who wrote great works, The Christian in Complete Armor in Four to six volumes, I believe, on this very passage from verse 10 through 18. He says, In heaven we shall appear not in armor. In heaven we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory. But here the armor is to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, the church, and especially the gospel-preaching, Bible-proclaiming church, is always in the sights of the devil. It is always, however sneakily or invisibly he attacks, or how openly and explicitly he attacks them, whether it is violent or whether it is through lies, whether it is out in the open for all to see or whether it is covert and the sending in of distractors and false teachers, regardless, Lord God, we know that the church is always the focus of attack of the greatest enemy this world has ever seen. And yet we stand in you complete and we stand in you trusting and we stand in you confident. 
Father God, in and of ourselves, we would, we would all buckle in the evil day. Every one of us would fall, we would fail, we would be found wanting if it was up to our own strength. But we are thankful that you have commanded us to be strong in your strength. So we don't have to muster up our armor, we can receive our armor from you. And you promise that we will then be able to withstand in the evil day. There are people, Lord God, here who are going through life situations, spiritual attacks, uh, uh, difficulties in their walk, and only you know about it. And Lord God, it is an attack of the devil. Not, not because it's, it's, it, it's a spiritual possession or it looks occultic, but because it distracts them from the gospel and it pulls them away from sharing Christ, from trusting Christ, and from worshiping Christ. Father God, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us a wisdom of revelation to know the gospel. You would give us a, a solid assurance by faith alone in Christ alone, that we would draw near to you and see the effects and schemes of the devil pushed away. Father God, I pray that this church would be, by your own power, strengthened and protected, that we may glorify you every day. Father God, I pray especially for those who are entirely outside of your defense. They're entirely outside of your protection. And they are not just vulnerable to the devil and all of his attacks, but also vulnerable to your own wrath. They are the enemies that the divine warrior comes to slay. And we ask, Lord God, that you would give them faith, the repentance to lay down their arms, lay down their weapons, and trust in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that they can be forgiven, they can receive your peace, and they can be made soldiers for you, not against you. Lord God, please give salvation tonight. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.